The Biden administration has directed agencies to focus on environmental justice and climate change. Officials think digital mapping can help these initiatives. A case in point, the Environmental Justice Index at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. For what that's all about, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with a geospatial epidemiologist at the CDC's Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. His name is Ben McKenzie. The Environmental Justice Index, which we call the EJI, provides a single community-level score that public health officials, uh, community groups, and others can use to map the areas most at risk for health impacts uh, related to environmental burdens. And we also know that social factors like race, uh, poverty, education, and pre-existing health conditions like asthma, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease can all make people more likely to become really sick because of environmental factors like air pollution. So uh, our tool combines all of these factors, these social factors, environmental factors, and health factors into a single understandable score that, that can be mapped. Got it. And this just launched in August of 2022? That's correct. The EJI rolled out on August 10th of 2022. And what was the lead up to that launch? What went into kind of building out this resource? As you can imagine, it takes a lot to bring together all of these different factors into a single score. So there was a process of building out a theoretical framework for our index, figuring out exactly what factors we wanted to uh, bring together in order to measure those impacts on health. So we did a lot of review of other tools and a lot of review of literature, consulting with subject matter experts to come up with our framework, which is, again, environmental burden, social vulnerability, and health vulnerability. So once we had our framework, uh, we moved on to figuring out what data we needed to, uh, to bring together to kind of fill that out and, and provide our overall index score. Um, so we looked at data across the United States, national-level data that measured, again, environmental factors that could influence health, social factors that kind of modified how those environmental factors uh, affect people's health and well-being, and uh, data on pre-existing chronic health conditions that also kind of modify how environmental factors influence health. So a lot of kind of time and review went into identifying the best data available at the national level, and then bringing all of that data together um, using a framework uh, originally developed at the state level called the Environmental Justice Screening Method that's also been applied to tools like CalEnviroScreen in California, Washington Health Disparities Map in Washington, and, and the MyEJ Screen, a new tool out in Michigan. We reviewed all of that, brought that all together, and then also asked for review from subject matter experts in uh, environmental epidemiology and environmental justice before we actually put everything together, put all those resources out, and made them available to the public. Got it. And and so this has been done to a certain extent at the state level, and this is really the first national level look at this type of index bringing together all these factors. And and so how is it being used so far? I think we're about six months in. How are you seeing it being used? What kind of feedback are you getting on it? Yeah, absolutely. So again, it's a relatively new tool. So, So what we really are trying to do right now is we're trying to get the word out about it to let people know 
that it's out there and available for their use. So we've put on a series of public informational webinars telling people about our methods, explaining how to use the tool, and really seeking structured feedback on how to refine and improve our approach going forward for future kind of versions of the tool. So what we're really working on is, again, engaging with communities, engaging with people, letting them know that the tool is available, um, and getting feedback that we can use to make make our approach better in the future. And I imagine this is useful across a range of fields, from medicine to policy making. Right, like it kind of cuts across those different areas and can be used as a as a resource, I suppose, to help inform decision making. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we we believe that there's uses among uh, policymakers, public health officials individuals and community-based organizations. And these people can use the EJI to identify and prioritize areas that might need uh, special attention or additional action in order to improve health or health equity. Um, They can use it to educate and inform people about community-level factors, uh, including analyzing the unique local factors that are contributing to cumulative impacts on, on those communities' healths. Uh, and then kind of use that information to inform policy and decision-making, as well as to use that data to establish meaningful goals and to measure progress towards health uh, and towards environmental justice and health equity. We do plan to update the EJI regularly going forward uh, to, to use the best data available at, at the time that we you know, recalculate and re-release this index. So we do plan to provide future iterations of this tool, future versions of the EJI, but you know we'll, we'll kind of be taking taking another look at what the data are like at the time that we are, are looking at recalculating, and we'll also be again considering those comments from community members, subject matter experts, and everyone else who's providing feedback uh, to us through those uh, webinars, through community engagement sessions that we've been hosting across the country, and through our mailbox at EJI underscore coordinator at cdc.gov, where people can contact us with questions about the index or provide feedback on uh, data that they'd like us to think about considering for future iterations. Or, you know, let us know if there are particular problems that they might be having using the mapping interface so that we can address those in future versions of the tool. And then, you know, behind the scenes, we talked about all the work that went into just, you know, vetting the index ahead of time, making sure it was going to be a really, you know, fallible, good resource for folks. What about just accessing the different types of data that you need to feed something like this? Does this require a lot of, you know, interagency data sharing agreements? Do you have to go pull from someplace? Any sort of stories of just working across agencies, maybe across, across uh, different levels of government to pull this together? So I can say that all of the data that we use is publicly available. So we're using data from the Environmental Protection Agency, the U.S. Mine Safety and Health Administration, the U.S. Census Bureau, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, and all of those data are, are, are kind of publicly available online. Most of them can be accessed very, very easily through API. You can you know, find a service online and download those data directly. That said, we definitely had experiences working with subject matter experts to make sure that we use their data appropriately. So we worked with the PLACES team at the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is an expansion of the 500 Cities Project. Uh, that's a, a co-venture between 
the CDC, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We worked with their team to identify what data they had available to contribute to our health vulnerability measure within the Environmental Justice Index, and they provided a lot of insight on best practices for using their data and helped us to really transform that data into our tool. Ben McKenzie, geospatial epidemiologist at the CDC's Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you 
recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. 
So Sulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you've got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.